0: I was waiting for Howard to get acclimated to his hospice care place, and I wanted to take my son Levi because Levi, with his special needs, Special Olympics, Howard was involved in Special Olympics, and I thought, well, I'll just wait until the evening to take him, and uh, we'll see him settled into his place and just continue to pray over him. But Howard passed away that very afternoon before we were able to get there. As I entered the room to uh, gather uh, with Diane and uh, the daughters, I uh, shared with her a simple phrase that has been uh, hopefully not trite to you or hasn't been to me in the years of my life. But in such times when a loved one passes away, things do change greatly with how we have our lifestyles and who is around us. But I said the phrase, Diane, you will be lonely. But know this, you are never, ever lonely alone. There's a difference between loneliness and aloneness. I could ask you here this morning and some of you say, well, I'm I'm lonely. In fact, you may say I have a bunch of friends. You may have five thousand friends on Facebook, too. I don't know. But you may have a season in your life that you're going through of loneliness. But I want you to know that if you're in one of those seasons, you are never, ever alone because God's presence is with us. No place I'd rather be than near to His love and His presence. Now, that's the right thing to say. Definitely for a pastor standing in front of people. Well, you know, you're never alone. God's always with you. Yeah, 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 I got that. But I want you to really ask yourself, do you really get that? You see, I forget that sometimes. And I'm the guy that studies the Word a lot. And I do prayer walks. and But yet sometimes I'm like, well, God, are you really here? Do you really care about this mess or this challenge or this struggle or that person or this hill that I'm climbing? And the answer is yes. But I want you to know that that's just not something you grab a hold of as a nice concept that's out there. You grab a hold of it because it's rooted from Scripture, the teaching of the authoritative word of Scripture, that you are never, ever alone, God's presence is with you. Even if you are not a follower of God this morning, or you've had your back turned against God, or you're not even sure if you have any interest in knowing about a Jesus, God's presence is everywhere. And just as surely as Mark Porter shared last week, after how many times he'd gotten arrested with drugs and everything, and he found himself flat uh, face down in the cell, knowing that this time it was going to be a a felony record that he was falling into, he just broke and he prayed to God in that cell as a non-believer because what? God was there. He was there. And so I want to drill down into one of the most precious psalms you will ever find, the Psalm of David 139. Psalm 139. Now this addresses some of the omnis in life. Omni is the word for all. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when someone says, God, Uh, okay, what's that concept? That's the most important thing, A.W. Tozer said. And so as we look at this psalm, we're going to be defining afresh some of the character of God related to his transcendent attributes, his transcendence attributes that begin with the word omni. And here's the three. There is omniscience, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. Omniscience is all-knowing. Omnipotence is all-powerful. And omnipresence is present everywhere. Now, when you look at these, we can sort of relate to the first two. I'm not saying you're omniscient and omnipotent. But we have knowledge. We have wisdom. So for us to think about a God who is all-knowing, all-wise, sort of got that. And then you can think about uh, omnipotence as powerful because we have strength and the ability. I pick up this stool, that kind of thing. But God, God's like omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Nothing is beyond His might. Okay, got that one. But omnipresence, friends, I know some of you try it. You've tried it this week, but you can only be in one place at one time. There is no one here who comes close to even trying to be able to identify with the ability to be everywhere present, all right? But this concept of God's omnipresence is foremost in Psalm 139, and it's there because David, probably as a shepherd boy out on the hills, a lot of time to think and contemplate, grew very close and intimate with God because he knew that wherever he He was. God was already there in advance of him. Tony Evans puts it this way. I like how he says, trying to tie and interact these three together. He says this, God, he knows what needs to be done. That's omniscience. He has the power to get her done. That's omnipotence. And he's always wherever he needs to be to do whatever needs to be done. That's omnipresence. Story of a young boy was at uh, a lunch with his mommy, and uh, they were having sort of a serious talk. And he said to his mom, "He said, Mom, where is God?" And the mother said, "Well, he's in heaven, right? Nice general safe answer. Does he live there? Well." Yes, he lives there. He thought a little bit more. and He says, well, where, where is Jesus? And the mom said, well, you've invited Jesus into your heart. Jesus lives in your heart. Oh. I thought that God and Jesus were the same person. So how can he be in heaven and in my heart at the same time? To which the mom went, what? Oh, it's very difficult and hard to understand. Pause. Well, Mom, where does the Holy Spirit live? Mom paused. I think it's time for a nap. (laughs) It's too hard to think about these things. Well, don't take a nap. You may want to, because this is theology, if you will, the study of God. But what comes to your mind When you think about God, it's the most important thing about you because the trajectory of your life will hinge upon that type of definition. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present God I want us to turn to Psalm 139. And in Psalm 139, it's basically broken in to four paragraphs, four sections with six verses each. And hopefully we will make our way through each of them. But the reality is that God himself is everywhere present. He cannot be contained in a building. We do not go to church because God is there. God is with his people. God is not contained in a building. He cannot be located in a city or even a nation. And we would be mindful not to get on a high moral horse to think that there's something special about a geographical area, that that's where God is. God cannot be reduced to an image. That's why throughout the scriptures, people got in trouble for reducing God to images. God is always present whether we believe it or not. You know, one of the early um, astronauts or cosmonauts for the Russians, he was in orbit around the Earth and he says, I've looked everywhere and I don't see God. Well, I'm sorry, you haven't looked everywhere if you just looked outside there and it doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, A famous Baptist preacher one time said to that comment, he said, You take off your space suit and you'll meet God real quick. (laughs) All right? So God's presence doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God is present even in the worst moments of life. You name it, from betrayal to hatred to lost job issues to even difficult issues such as cancer, uh, sexual abuse, warfare. God is present. He's not absent. God is always available to us wherever we go. 24 hours a day, aren't you thankful you don't have to take a number and stand in line for God? Or when you call him up, if you will, you don't get put on hold that says, sorry, he's busy with something in the Middle East. He'll get back to you. God's presence is immediately there. And we need to rely on him in this. And so here's the psalmist, and he begins to look at reality around him and even his own soul. And it starts this way in Psalm 139. He's answering the question, how well does God know me? How well does God know me? Verse 1, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. The word there for searched actually is the word dig. You, you get into me. You dig me, if you will. You, you, you really know me. Lord, you understand me and you know me in my conscious life and you know me in all ways. It says this then in verse 2, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. There's passive and active. When I sit is passive. When I'm being passive in life, you're there. When I'm being active and I rise, you're there. You perceive my thoughts from afar. That means you are even in the mind of me and you know my thoughts before they even come from my subconscious mind. You are everywhere present in all those type of scenarios. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You know the way I choose to go and you know the habits of my life. You know me, Lord. You know me. Then in verse 4 and 5, he contemplates the fact that God is concerned about him. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You understand my language. God knows not only English and Spanish and French and Mandarin and Hebrew and Greek. He knows all Languages And he knows every word that's on the tongue of anyone completely and what's behind that type of talk. Verse four, five, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The um, encouraging thing, I think, is that uh, we can find ourselves in a very limited way with our knowledge and things, but his knowledge is all great, and he knows. And so you climb into the incredible beauty of who God is, and you just sit back in stunned silence. Such knowledge, <sighs> that's just too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, for some people, that's encouraging, for other people, that's not very encouraging. You hem me in behind. That means he knows your past. And before, he knows the future. And you lay your hand upon me, which is the present. So past, present, and future. You know all of this. His omniscience in this regards. And that's just too incredible. Too lofty. Too wonderful for me. Except if... You're trying to run from Him. That's not good. Because then you don't want an all-knowing God. And I honestly believe a lot of times when people do not believe in God's existence, you want to say, you know, really, if I could actually prove to you beyond uh, any doubt that there is a God, would that make any difference to you? No. Why? Because we have a sin-bent part of our life that wants to live life on our own and not submit and glorify and worship a God. So a lot of times the question isn't actual evidence, if you will. It's the reality that there's a volitional part of us, the will, and we don't want to be known. A story told of a guy that he, uh, uh, a true story from my understanding, he uh, decided he was going to rob a pharmacy, and so he put on sunglasses Put on something else, and he went into this pharmacy and he tried to rob the pharmacist. And the pharmacist was able to take care of the situation without pulling a weapon, without being able to, you know, try to convince the guy not to rob, because he started to listen to the voice and he recognized the voice. And he knew who it was. And he called him by name. And then he says, You know, so-and-so, is that really you? Is this a joke? And as soon as the guy knew that the guy knew him, what did he do? He hightailed out of there and he jumped on a city bus and he was gone. Because once someone knows your name and who you are, there's no hiding. And so if you're someone who desires for God to be in your life, that's lofty, that's wonderful, that's great news. But if you're running from God... That's scary news for you this morning. But I want you to know, if that's your place where you're at, the God who knows you desires to embrace you, encourage you, take a hold of your life and move it in a trajectory that you can never move, one of beauty that you can never move towards in and of yourself. So that's the first section, if you will, of what's going on with uh, this psalm. How well does God know me? Then the next question the psalmist addresses is this. How near is God to me? How near is God to me? Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, this is the same kind of aspect that you can't get away from God. Even though sometimes you want to. You cannot go anywhere where he is not. Verse 8, if I go to the heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Another translation talks about it being Hades. So if I go to the heavens, my goodness, you're out there. And if I go to hell, Hades, there is a presence of God knowing what's there. All right? I cannot go outside of your presence in this life. No destiny can separate me from the fact of God. None whatsoever. The presence of God is not a fearful thought, though. And the writer goes on to say that no distance can separate him from God. Verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. This is a very poetic way of describing things. And uh, I thought it was interesting this morning. I was up again before uh, the sun rises. And you know how the sun rises sort of coming up over the hills, that kind of thing. And you see it getting brighter. But then once it peaks over the hills or the mountains, it's like, shooom! The light rays just straight forward. Some of them come right into your bedrooms. And it says, good morning, Right? Well, you think about that. That's the the whole idea. I rise on the wings of the dawn. On the wings of the dawn, just as surely as the sun bursts up and over a mountain range, and the light shoots out into eternity, if you will, into the universe. That's where God's at, on the wings of the dawn. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast it does not matter where you are. you know I was uh, were you amazed by the pictures uh, this last week that uh, the spacecraft took of Pluto? Some of you see those? I did. And you try to get your mind around how many light years or time it took you know to get there and then is uh, a new horizon, what was the name of the spacecraft? and it takes these incredible high, detailed photos and they say that the photos won't all be downloaded until a year from now and you're thinking wow it makes sense how cool is that guess what there's god there's god in the vast expanse of who he is see we're used to localization because we're localized i am here in body form i couldn't be here last week because i was in denver I could not be here in Temecula, all right? And so we have a sometimes, and this is our problem as humans and and Christians, that we project back on God our image. And so it's like, well, God couldn't be there and there and there. Well, yes, he could. He's God. And he's spirit in the vast expanse of all who he is. Yes, he sent his son incarnated in a body and came here and walked on this earth, lived, died, rose again Uh, from the grave after he was crucified on the cross. The incredible story that we're a part of as followers of Jesus Christ. And you can be a part of, if you're a seeker of God this morning, to become a follower of Jesus Christ. God came in this body, became localized, as we said, boots on the ground. That's an incredible story. But do not, in your ability to live with God, localize him as being in one place. He is everywhere and he is able to guide you at any moment of any day. He will direct. Nicholas Herman was a man many years ago who worked in the food industry as a short-order cook and bottle washer. He became deeply dissatisfied with his life. He worried chronically about himself, even whether or not he was a Christian. Nicholas Herman. One day Nick was looking at a tree and it struck him. The secret to the life of the tree is that it remains rooted in something other and deeper than itself. So he decided to make his life an experiment in what he called, I like this phrase, habitual, silent, secret conversation of the soul with God. I'll say it again. His experiment was to have habitual, silent, secret conversations of the soul with God. He is known today by a new name given to him by his friends and some of you may know this name Brother Lawrence. He remained obscure throughout his life. He never got voted Pope. He never got close to becoming the CEO of his organization. He stayed in the kitchen. But the people around him found that the rivers of living water flowed out of him that made them want to know God the way he Knew God. They said about him. The good brother found God everywhere. <clears throat> One of them wrote. He found God as much. While he was preparing. Or as while he was repairing shoes. As while he was praying. With the Christian community. Brother Lawrence. Died. His friends put together a book. Of his letters and conversations. And it's called. Practicing the presence of of God. How many of you heard of that book, Practicing the Presence of God? It's a really small book for you that don't like to read. That's why I read it when I was very young. I was like, I think I can do that. It came highly recommended, Carrie, with devotional classics. You should read Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And I go, Really? Uh, who wrote it? A guy that worked in a kitchen in a monastery. What? Why would I do that? But you read this little volume and you discover what his friends discovered, that he really did see God and understood God in every place. And so that was his life experiment, was to practice the presence of God wherever he was, to tune in. Practicing the presence of God, apart from the Bible, has become one of the most widely read books in the last four centuries. The monastic shorter cook probably outsold novelist John Gershom, Tom Clancy, and J.K. Rowling. Practicing the presence of God. You can find it. You can maybe find it online even without purchasing the book. I don't know. But it's just the concept that you would take time every day to practice the God who is everywhere present in what I'm doing. So you may find yourself frustrated, as I often do, waiting I'm not a very patient person. So whether I'm, you know, waiting in my car, waiting in a store, waiting on someone to show up, whatever it is, I can start to get anxious inside. But in that moment, guess what? I am never, ever alone. And so I can practice the presence of God in that moment. Even this whole idea that Brother Lawrence, he looked at the tree and he saw, you know, a beautiful tree. But then he's contemplating and said that tree is finding its substance from something other than itself being rooted and dug in. Why would he think that? He was taking the time to contemplate and think. Friends, you have been given some incredible minds in this room. All of us have. But sometimes we waste those minds on very... Petty things. Sometimes we waste those minds on just busyness. I need to chill, man. I've got to chill. I've got to hang. And I appreciate it. I'm the same way. Let Let me dial down. But some of us get so dialed down that we never dial up to engage with the God who is present and learn and discover Him. Take the initiative to use the mind and the heart of your very essence of who God made you to be to dial into the God who is around you and within you if you're a follower of Him. He wants to commune with you. He wants to have conversations with you. An ongoing practice in my life I've tried, sometimes I forget, is to just put Jesus in the car seat next to me when I'm driving somewhere. Sometimes I was looked at funny by my wife when we started dating because she says, well, what did you do today? And I said, well, we went over here and we did that and we did this. And she'd look at me and I'd go, well, who are you with? I go, I'm sorry. I it's one of the ways I practice the presence of God in my life. We, me and the Lord. Yeah. We, we, you know, we went to the store today. Me and the Lord, we went to pick up a friend at the airport. Me and the Lord, we were there knocking it out in my office, trying to think through how to put some thoughts together for some uh, messages. Whatever, me, me and the Lord, we, we, we. Is God that close to you in your life that you would actually articulate to someone else that it was a we? Or is God, oh, yeah, I went to church, and God was there. We worshiped God. That was good. And then I dialed back in to lunch afterwards, and then I had a really busy afternoon getting the car clean and getting the house cleaned up because work was coming Monday, and then boom, boom, right into the treadmill. We have to work at practicing the presence of God, all right? Practicing the presence of God. Verse 11 says this, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is no hiding from God, even in nighttime. He's there. You don't have to wake God up. Isn't that incredible? Some of you have sleep problems, right? And you get up, you're never, ever alone. Lord is in there, even with the darkness. So I answered those two questions. How well does God know me? How near is God to me? The third set of verses in this psalm address sort of this question. How does God know all about me? How does God know all about me? And these verses may be familiar to some of you. They're incredible, incredible verses verse 13 For you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made your works are wonderful I know that full well He's examining himself and he finds it amazing the vitality and the complexity of the forces that that cause his body to come together how does God know all about me? Well, it's, it, it has to do with a deduction from design. Design of the body. Look at, look at how I'm made. And there's no way that I could have been made like this. So God was with me there in my mother's womb, bringing about my very existence, forming me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So how do we know God's presence? Just... Just look, look at yourself. I mean, look at your hands. Aren't those incredible things? All the different bones coming together and how it's cupped and the number of digits and then the purpose of the thumb and how all that can work. And then look how the ears form. The ears form to, to be able to, to take sounds in. We take these things for granted because we all look alike we all sort of have those things, Right? Slowing down, practicing the presence of God, contemplating this. Well, God, how are you? He had to be there. It's called the theological argument. There's five arguments for the existence of God. The theological has to do with uh, the belief in the design. How did this get here? There were uh, two people that were working for NASA once when when they shot off a rocket to go to the moon. And one turned to the other and said, wow, isn't that amazing that we're going to by chance be able to hit the moon with that thing? That's pretty cool. The other one said, what do you mean by chance? Millions and millions of hours we spent for that to be able to hit and land on the moon. One was a Christian. The other was an atheist. The guy who was the Christian is the one who was chiding him about by chance. And he says, well, that's the same way it is with God. Why do you think by chance we sort of all came together? I think the theological argument is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God. But we don't like to go there sometimes. And it's not just the external things we can see. Think about the internal ways that we're wired, even down to the very DNA. Think about how all the organs sort of play with one another. They are intricately woven. The heart needs the lungs. The lung needs the hearts. All right? The liver needs the kidneys. The stomach needs both the liver and the kidneys. They're all put together. In fact, one of the challenges for an evolutionist, a pure uh, hyper-evolutionist, is, well, how did these organs come into existence when the only way that they would function is if they functioned all at once in their maturity? They don't just gradually evolve into that kind of organ that's within us. And so here's David, and he's contemplating God and where he's at, and, and how in the world would God know about me? And he climbs into an understanding of who he is by himself, Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. The frame is what? Your structure, right? And it's um, uh, your uh, skeleton because without that we would just be a, a blob of jelly, right? Without a frame. The word woven there. For some of you ladies, I guess some men could do it too. The word uh, woven there is that it's the word embroidered. Embroidered. That's the fancy little stuff. And you took my life and you did the fancy little embroidering and this is how exactly that I am made. How cool is that? Uniquely, wonderfully made, brought together by God. Verse 16, and I let this verse stand on its own, because I want to just say a couple things here. Your eyes, God's eyes, saw my unformed body. That's not something you're going to find on headline news. You know, as much as uh, some of us have been challenged by recent things happening in our culture, when I watched the undercover video that was put out concerning Planned Parenthood and the whole selling of fetus parts, I don't think I hit a lower low in low cringing with that with my world, but yet that's not anything new. And abortion is not anything new. How God is so patient with us. And I'm mindful that in this room, there are those of you who ended up making a very difficult decision. You felt at the time, and that's a part of your past, and you grieve that. I'm also mindful that in this room, there are people who have had miscarriages, maybe even recently. I want you to know that God knew that unformed child. Your eyes saw my unformed child. Do you know the word unformed? It sort of means wrapped up. When you see the early part of the fetus, what is it? It's sort of wrapped up and then it's unfolded. How did David know this? You saw my unfolded, unformed body. I believe heaven, the eternal realm, is going to be filled with a lot of people that actually never got to put feet on the ground in this world. I do. You ever thought about that? He knew me. He knew me from the very beginning. And he formed me and created me. You know, we've adopted, uh, one of our children has adopted, Grace is, and we adopted her 15 months sort of a challenging thing when you think about all the people that need to be adopted and some of you have adopted children and, and uh, we were um, getting ready to go to bed the other night and Melissa showed me a Facebook post because she's on all these different posts with people as it relates to different dimensions in life and one is uh, people that uh, have been adopted or that kind of thing and there were these postings of children who needed to be readopted. in other words, they had been adopted once and something happened. Some parents maybe chose, don't want to keep them because of maybe some ailments. But a lot of times this, a difficulty happened in the home and they, they, they just needed to be adopted. She showed me these pictures. And I'm sitting there. Of course, I'm working with this message, right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, let's call them up. Let's call them up. Why? And one of them was a Chinese girl that was about my daughter's age. And I'm thinking, How sad she was adopted and now she's up for adoption again. And I'm like, oh, And, and why does your heart go out? Because you know from Scripture, from this type of Scripture, that God loves them. He created them. He has a design for them. He knows them full well. And they need to be loved well. And so that's sort of the heart of God, if you will, pulsating through us to want to care. But the psalmist here, just adamant. That God was there from the beginning. Your eyes saw my unformed body. The rest of the verse, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand when I awake. I am still with you. The abundance of revelation from God was overwhelming him. But then there's this last section of verses, and sometimes you just sort of stop reading (laughs) the psalm right there. But the last set of verses show you that you're dealing with a real human being who's writing this. Okay? Yes, through the inspiration of God. The last section has to do with this question. How will God deal with mankind? Because out of the blue, he just sort of jumps from this beauty, this incredible thing, and then he says this, verse 19, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. You're like, did somebody just change the movie on us? The channel? How did he just jump there? Well, he's human. And he reflects on those who do not aspire to worship this kind of great God and that their ways are evil. In fact, he's actually reflecting here on people who claim to be religious, claim to be religious. They speak of you with evil intent. Verse 20, your adversaries misuse your name. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. And all you can say here is that he's wanting God to deal justice. But God knows. And God is gracious and kind. He desires that all would be led to repentance and turn towards him. There will come a day when his justice will prevail. But this human being, David, was like, God, do something about all these people that can't see this. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Sometimes we think it's different. It's not. The God of the Old Testament loved and was gracious. The God of the New Testament loved gracious in his Son. God desires that all would come into a full revelation of him and experience of him through a relationship, through his ever-present Son, through the Holy Spirit. The last two verses... To some degree, hail back to the very first verse. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I think the psalmist sort of catches himself here. Did I just write that bloodthirsty thing? I'm sorry. He says, search my heart. Come right here. You know me. The word search was in the very first verse, right? You search me and you know me. He's asking God to examine his heart, to see if his thoughts are right, if there's any offensive way in him and to be led into the way of everlasting. That is our response to the omniscience, the omnipotence and the omnipresence of an almighty God. Is God, here's my life. Search me, know me, lead me, into a place of repentance, and may I know the way of life everlasting. And you had a great example if you were here last week with Mark Porter, dynamic young man has been through a lot. He said, "Search me, God, I surrender, take my life to be used for you." I want to ask you if that would be your prayer, that last verse. Search me. Know me, test me, see if there's any offensive way, lead me. May it be your prayer. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we labored through these incredible verses of this song, we thank you for birthing that in the heart of David, for us to be able to have it, not only to cherish it through these years, but Lord, for it to speak into our life. So Lord, may you take your word from this song and may you challenge us to not be frivolous in the lives that we live, but to live lives in an awareness of your close proximity and come into a deep, intimate relationship with you. Lord, you've made it possible for us to know you deeply. May we be hungry. May we be diligent. May we be disciplined. May we be aggressive even in knowing you who were there. We thank you that you knew us from the very beginning. And no matter how we have fallen or what challenges you had, you are able to take a life and remake it. Lord, we can look at a Moses, we can look at a Peter, we can look at a Paul, all these great examples, but they were men who were broken and they'd messed up a lot. Lord, you care for who we are because you made us and you designed us in a certain way, gave us a personality, gave us certain physical features. You gave us interests, gifts, passions. Lord, we offer our lives back to you and we say, search us, oh God. See if there's any offensive way. Lead us, Lord, into the way everlasting as we freshly surrender our lives to you. So, Lord, across this room, I know not where people are at in their relationship with you, but I just pray that you would lead them into a simple prayer of surrender and fresh seeking of you this morning.
1: And if that's your
0: heart, may you just pray these kinds of words. Jesus, I lay my life down again, or maybe for the first time, come afresh into my life strengthen me for the days ahead, but may I dwell in your presence that is there. Jesus, search me because you know me. Bring me to a place of repentance for anything that needs to be offered to you. See if there's any offensive way in me, Lord. It's too wonderful for me to try to comprehend that you made me. I was birthed through my mother's womb, but you made me in that womb. And you have plans for me. And I want to experience those plans and be the one who leads a life into the way everlasting. Take charge of my life afresh and anew. Lord, I surrender. I surrender all for your glory. Thank you.